<clears throat> chapter we read there in Luke 22, and read again verses 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Well, as we know, these um, words are delivered by Jesus on the night of the Lord's Supper. The meal that he had been looking forward to with enthusiasm and with great desire. He was doing things that were uh, innovative, Um, life-changing. He was removing the Passover from having its significance in God's kingdom and he was replacing it with the Lord's Supper and of course that has lasted until now and it will not be changed until the second coming. But then, at the second coming, it will disappear as well. And like the Passover, the Lord's Supper will be no more. The occasion, therefore, was one of great importance. And we know that when somebody is announcing something of great importance... The people who are invited to be present are expected to be sympathetic to what has been introduced and to have a commitment to it that would uh, help the person making the change. But as we see with the disciples... They had no idea of what was going on. That doesn't mean they didn't have any ideas. They had plenty of ideas, but they had no idea of what was going on. And the basic problem, as we know, is that though they have spent the last three years in the company of Jesus... And they have heard him say lots of incredible things. They didn't believe what he said about his death. And of course, we probably find that hard to understand. Because <clears throat> the death of a Savior is where we start from. I mean, isn't it? 
I mean, none of us would be Christians if we hadn't heard about the death of Jesus. That's the, the catalyst that brings people to faith. It's the central feature of the gospel. But to these disciples of Jesus, <clears throat> and who were genuine disciples, the last thing they wanted was for Jesus to die. In some ways that's quite encouraging, isn't it? Because it tells us that faith can exist where knowledge is wrong. And it is possible, on the other hand, to have plenty of knowledge and no faith. But anyway, the disciples were in a bad way. I suppose if we were to look at them and we would perhaps ask which one of them would not be as bad as the rest? Well, the candidate for that would be Peter, wouldn't it? Because Peter was such an enthusiastic, devoted disciple of Jesus. And he had showed his enthusiasm on numerous occasions and even prepared to do things that were quite extraordinary. I mean, we, we can think about a couple of them before we move on to the actual verses, but Peter, what a brave man he was to walk in the water. I mean, all we have to do is ask ourselves if we happened to be out in the minch and Jesus came walking towards us, how many of us would leave the ferry? But Peter did, didn't he? He was prepared to get out and do what nobody had ever done before. Whatever else we want to say about his walk in the water, it was certainly one way to leave your comfort zone. And he had <clears throat> no previous example to imitate. He couldn't say that David had done this, or that Isaiah had done it, or that Abram had done it. Nobody had done it. Of course, nobody's done it since either. But anyway, Peter was eager to participate. And if Jesus was there, I'll go to be with him. It's almost as if he was saying, I'd rather be with Jesus on the water than in the boat with those who can't or don't or who won't go out to be on the water with him. Jesus gave him permission to go. He asked Jesus, could he do it? Would this man deny Jesus? Another time, 
Jesus happened in Caesarea Philippi, asked the disciples, who do people think that I am? What's the view in the street? Jesus, of course, is not asking out of ignorance. It's a lead-up question. It's not a wise person who only has one question. Jesus had other questions in mind. And who do people say I am? And Peter knew right away. Some say Elijah and some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Ten out of ten for that answer. Then you got another question. Who do you say that I am? And the other eleven, their lips were sealed. But Peter, you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus said to him, as we know, Blessed are you, Simon. For flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. Would that man deny Jesus? Well, what did he say two minutes later? Jesus said to him, to them, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. And Peter said to him, No, you won't. He could cope with Jesus' person. But he couldn't cope with Jesus' purpose. Would we expect him to deny Jesus? If you're reading it for the first time, what thought would go through your mind? Surely it was something like this man's got problems. Although he knows who Jesus is, he's not willing to give Jesus a place he deserves. He thinks his plans for Jesus are more important than Jesus' plans for himself. His plan for Jesus is that he should not die. And he protested so strong that Jesus even called him Satan. Another thing we can think about with Peter, he had a tendency to spoil situations, didn't he? His enthusiasm. It's not always a good thing to be over enthusiastic. 
Earlier this evening, when the Lord's Supper had been introduced, Jesus had washed their feet. Peter again objected. Words of very vehement language. You shall never wash my feet. What a thing to say to Jesus. Words said by a man who didn't know what was going to happen in a minute's time. (coughs) You shall never wash my feet. That's a very strong statement. Anytime we use the word never, we're saying something strong. And it's usually said in a situation where we have no control over it. But um, Jesus said to him, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Peter said, enthusiasm, enthusiasm personified. Wash not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus had to explain to him an enacted parable, washing their feet, daily cleansing from sin, because our feet is the part of our body that we make contact with the ground. He said to Peter, you're already clean. As far as salvation is concerned, you're saved. And there's Peter with the other disciples, Jesus washing their dirty feet because none of them would do it. But of course, on that evening, none of them should do it because the evening is all about him, about Jesus. That man denied Jesus. He didn't think so. But we know the story. Just like it's a thing about three things an active devil, then future usefulness, and then Peter's self confidence. And then two or three lessons. Jesus was aware of the devil's activity, wasn't he? In the invisible world. And it's rather a stark statement that he says there in verse 31, isn't it? Don't have you ever really thought about it. So obviously of tremendous importance because whenever Jesus uses a word twice he's calling us to pay attention and he says Simon 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 I know what's been going on 
in the world you cannot see. And in the world you cannot see, Satan has demanded to have you. The word you there, in verse 31, demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. That you is plural. So, verse 31, although it's actually said to Peter, it's not just about Peter. For Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have all of you. And I suppose when we think about that, he's already got one of them. Because Judas, Judas is gone. What does it mean that the devil demanded it? It's a very strong word. And it's not a a request that's going to be denied. Because Jesus, as we can see, will, will allow it to happen. He's demanded that he might sift them like wheat. Sifting's a very graphic picture. As we know, it's taken from separating wheat from chaff. And the farmer just throws it up in the air until all is separated. So Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to be thrown in the air. And I suppose that a lot depends on the strength of the person that's doing the throwing. This antagonist, the devil... He can deal with all of them. He doesn't have to deal with them in rotation. We can think of poor Job, can't we? I mean, he was sifted, wasn't he? And he came through it eventually. But it was a terrible experience. So for Jesus to be referring to this possibility, I mean, Peter should have been shaking. wonder why Satan had the awareness that he could make the demand. What does the devil want? What does he want to happen to us? Well, I think basically is he wants us to be punished for our sins. I mean, that's what he's experienced himself, isn't it? He sinned, he got punished. 
the disciples sin, they should get punished. That's his logic. And of course, when we look at the disciples here, what did they deserve to get? And what are they doing? Well, they're discussing which of them should be the greatest. What was the devil doing when he fell? He was trying to be the greatest. And as he experienced immediate justice, is he not demanding something similar for Peter? He's coming with determination, conviction, full of enmity and evil. But he wants God, basically, to treat them as God treated him. And rather, solemnly, it was allowed. And then we go to verse, that's for all of them. All we have to do is ask ourselves, in a couple of hours' time, what are they all going to be doing? They all forsook him and fled. They left the Savior, ran away. But then Jesus, in verse 32, focuses on Peter. Because the word you and the word your in verse 32 are singular. They're plural in verse 31. Satan demanded to have all of you that he might sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. Jesus' perception of Peter looks like, doesn't it? And we almost say it with a certain amount of fear. Jesus was prepared to let Peter fall so that his faith wouldn't fail. I mean, that's quite extraordinary, isn't it? He was prepared to let him fall so that his faith wouldn't fail. What mattered for Peter was not that he gets some comfort. Peter would have liked some comfort. But it was more important for Peter that his faith would not fail. And the only way for his faith not to fail was for him to discover his weakness. Because at this particular moment, he's full of 
his own strength and power. Poor Peter. But we're not to say that as if we wouldn't be there. How often do we depend on our own power? Our own strength? What Jesus cares about is our faith. What's going to happen to poor Peter the next couple of days? What's the devil going to say to Peter? He's going to taunt him for forsaking Jesus, isn't he? You, the big, brave man. You denied him with oaths and curses. He's going to tell them that they're fools for serving a man who's now dead. And poor Peter himself is going to be tormented by his public denial. Pride can have disastrous consequences. But Jesus says to Peter, you'll have future usefulness. When you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. I suppose we could say that that verse just says the best person to help those in a mess is one who has been in a mess. His brothers, the ten of them, well, they're going to need help. And isn't it extraordinary that Jesus suggests, indicates, states that the one who will help them is the one who fell the most. If that was our way of doing things, Peter would be the last one to help anyone. But with Jesus, he's the first. Peter fell the furthest. And because he went through the mill, and his faith remains strong. He can help the others. I suppose Peter, as he was listening to this, would have said to Jesus, well, that's comforting. He wasn't listening, of course, but as we read that statement, strengthen your brothers, it's far bigger than it initially sounds. When we turn to the book of Acts, what's the first 12 or so chapters about? It's all about Peter. Peter strengthening his brothers. Because he ends up in all kinds of predicaments. He just strengthens his brothers. Even when they have to decide who is going to replace Judas. Who takes the lead? Peter. On the day of Pentecost, when the 
the, this new phenomenon has got to be explained. Who does the explaining? Peter. When the disciples begin to be arrested, who gets arrested first? Well, it's Peter and John, isn't it? They become examples to the others. And it's amazing to read the book of Acts and just look at the strengthening of Peter. What he's able to do in all kinds of situations. And he's able to do it because of where he's been. He's been down as low as he could get. And because he was and his faith remained, he strengthened his brother. But it wasn't just those who are described in the book of Acts that he strengthened. There's the people who got his two letters. And as he writes these two letters, first and second, Peter, he's writing to Christians who are in real trouble. They are being persecuted and their lives are totally uncertain. Who is chosen, as it were, to strengthen them? Peter. I suspect there are thousands of Christians tonight reading First Peter because the world they're in is one marked by persecution. And who's strengthening them? Peter. Peter's collapse wasn't a permanent calamity. And that's good for us to know when we think about our own sins. But here, sadly, Peter showed his self-confidence. Despite getting rebuked by Jesus, and despite having this wonderful promise that somehow or other, after he's been restored, he'll strengthen his brothers, Peter says, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And of course, Peter meant that. He already said, didn't he? They may deny you, but I'll never deny you. Jesus knew Peter would say that, didn't he? Nothing was hidden from him. I suppose it's worth asking, when did Jesus pray for Peter? When he says there in verse 32, I have prayed for you. When did he do that? It's only a guess. Was he praying for Peter while Peter was getting ready the room? After all, he was Selected for that special role? Was he praying for Peter as he watched his behavior at the Lord's Supper? Was he praying for Peter as he saw him fully engaged in the argument but which of them should be the greatest? Well, they're just guesses. 
when he prayed for him. But it's not a guess to ask how he prayed for him. Because the word that's translated prayed there, I have prayed for you, means to beg. I have begged for you. Satan has demanded to have you. But I have begged for you. That your faith do not fail. What does beg mean in this situation? Well, surely there's a sense of urgency. He's imploring help to come to Peter. He realizes the distress that Peter's going to have. And what does his Savior do for him? He begs for power. And of course, his earnestness, his imploring, is a sign of his affection. Imagine if Jesus had made a feelingless prayer. What would that have indicated? But his, I have implored for you, Peter. It tells us the strength of his affection. Good to have a savior like that, isn't it? Then just some things to note. What lessons do we learn from this? Well, one is that discipleship is lifelong, isn't it? You can never judge a man by the moment. If we were to judge Peter by this moment, what a stupid judgment it would have been. Discipleship is lifelong. It's how a man ends that matters. How Peter would end is what matters. So discipleship is lifelong. There's also responding to temptation. What's going to happen to us tomorrow? What's going to happen to you and to me? We're going to be tempted. It's guaranteed. The devil is going to try and tempt us one way or the other. What do we do when we get tempted? I suppose there's lots of things we could do, but I think we're being told here by Jesus to see the sovereignty of God. I mean, the devil's under his control. He couldn't just, as it were, step in. But he had to kind of ask very strongly. But he still had to ask. So we have to recognize God's sovereignty. 
But there's far more other things we can do. We should pray not to be led into temptation. That's a daily prayer. I mean, the Lord's prayer is a daily prayer. Give us today our daily bread. Every petition the Lord's prayer is for every day. And one of them is, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This would be a get up in the morning. It implies, since it's a prayer for daily bread, it implies it's a prayer that's offered in the morning for the food you're going to get that day. But at the same time, as we pray for our daily bread, we're to pray, lead us not into temptation. The Savior, who knew the dangers of temptation, tells his disciples to pray about it. Not to assume that God won't allow it. He has told us to pray to be delivered. But also to look for the way of escape. Because Paul tells us that whenever anyone is tempted, God provides a way of escape so we'll be able to bear it. The way of escape sometimes might just be shutting our eyes. At other times, it might just be shutting our ears. At our time, it might just be leave the room. There's a way of escape. Nothing complex. Don't need a private helicopter to suddenly arrive near us to take us out of it. The way of escape is right beside us. Peter doesn't look as if he prayed the prayer he'd been taught to pray. Doesn't look as if he looked for the way of escape. And of course, we've also got the example of Jesus. How do we deal with the devil? What's the only sword? That pierces him. It's the sword of the Spirit. You and I can argue with the devil all day long. Won't do us any good. But one verse. That's what Jesus did, wasn't it? Three verses in the book of Deuteronomy. It's elementary in a certain sense. But here poor Peter failed elementary lessons. And we fail them too, don't we? So discipleship is lifelong. How do we respond to temptation? And think about the intercession of Jesus. We're not to think that the current intercession of Jesus is like what happened here in the, in the upper room. 
when Jesus now intercedes, he's not in an upper room. Where does he intercede from? He intercedes from the throne of God. Up there, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. And he doesn't do these roles in, in sequence. He does them simultaneously. And the one who intercedes for us at this moment, because he never stops, is the king. And as a king, he always speaks with power. And when the enemy attacks our souls, who's going to defeat him? Whoever defeats them, it's only Jesus. And when we think of his intercession, we are never to think that he's pleading. On the throne, he gives commands. And we can tie ourselves in knots thinking about how his divine nature and his human nature contributes to all of it. But the easiest thing to do is just to accept it. That his intercession works. But it's good. Jesus is doing 100% for his people all the time. The last thing I just want to remember is this. Look at the amazing restoration. Peter fell to the bottom of the ladder. He didn't recover by going up one rung, two rungs, three rungs. He was restored. He was restored to where he was. An apostle. Strengthen your brothers. So there's lots of lessons from Peter's temptation. So may God bless these thoughts. We'll sing Psalm 23.